Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with The Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we will be reading Love and Pride by Rachel Munro. This story was first published in The People's Friend in 1927, and will be read for you by Friend Production Editor, Judy Struth. The music of the last foxtrot died away. It was the end of the midwinter dance of the local tennis club, and as most of the girls would not meet each other again until the tennis season began, the ladies' cloakroom was full of chattering girls. Leslie Starr, gayest of the gay, tripped in and laughingly waltzed her friend Ruby Manson round the room. You seem to have enjoyed yourself, someone remarked. Has the new minister anything to do with it? He gave you plenty of dances, I noticed. Leslie turned her bright grey eyes on the speaker. The minister? she exclaimed with a slight curl of her lip. He doesn't interest me in the slightest. Can you imagine me presiding over a manse? Laughter answered her query, and Ruby Manson smiled at Leslie's vehemence, knowing well the bitterness that prompted the question. Where's my coat? Someone of more importance than a mere minister will be wearing out his shoes and patience if I don't hurry. And Leslie, bidding everybody good night, passed into the hall. Awaiting her was Alan Keith. Alan, handsome, clever, grave, and just a little bit stern, had fallen in love with Leslie at first sight, and now they were engaged. He was a lawyer, but clever as he was, he had a long way to go before he reached the top of his profession. Leslie smiled up into his face as they went into the street, and passing a taxi stance, Alan remarked carelessly, with his usual economy of words, that there were plenty of taxis to be had. Leslie turned to him and smiling bewitchingly said, partly in jest, I would like a taxi home, Alan. May we have one? Alan hesitated. When would they manage to be married, he wondered, if he threw away precious money on a taxi, especially when it was such a lovely night for a walk? Her pleading face now wore a frown, and Leslie, his Leslie, said bitterly, Oh, never mind. If you don't wish to take one, I'll walk. I'll easily get one for you, dear. Alan turned to tell the driver, but Leslie, with her head lifted proudly, had walked on. Overtaking her, Alan in vain tried to make her talk to him. Her pride was terribly wounded, and she at last turned to him. I never before knew you were so greedy. It was a cruel thrust. My dear, protested Alan. It's for you that I save and scrape. 
If you love me, you must think better of me. You can't love me, else you'd have taken that taxi. I'm cold and I never want to see you again. I'll manage to go home alone. Good night. As Alan, stupefied, watched her go, a taxi overtook her, stopped, and the new minister alighted, spoke a few words to her, and then they both got in. Alan watched the taxi disappear and knew that Leslie Starr was being whirled out of his life, for he realised how great was the pride of the woman he had loved and would always love. One bright June morning, Leslie Starr stood at the altar with the Reverend Angus McRae, the new minister. Like one in a dream, and looking straight before her, Leslie went through the ceremony, realising that she was far from being happy. Pride had begun to take its toll. The ceremony over, man and wife went down the aisle, and Angus, noticing the deathly pallor of his wife's face, asked anxiously if she was ill. No, she faltered. I'm just a little bit tired with the heat. And she bravely smiled as they passed through their crowd of friends and approached the car that was standing at the curb. Happening to raise her eyes to where a bus had drawn up waiting to pass, the smile froze on her lips. Seated in the bus was Alan Keith, and his big grey eyes, cold and steely, held hers like a magnet. For one brief moment, the world seemed to stand still for these two souls. Then with an effort, Leslie stepped into the car and was followed by the man she had just promised to love, honour and obey. Well, my dear, that's the worst past now. He took the cold hand on which the wedding ring glistened. Vainly did Leslie struggle to answer but no words could she utter. Seeing Alan had been a shock to her. How exacting was pride in taking its toll. At the hotel, another crowd waited. Oh, why can't people leave us alone? asked Leslie. Never mind, dear. You'll get plenty of free time and we'll be quite alone when we reach Skye. Skye? Sky, with its rugged grandeur, restlessness and calmness. How symbolic of the nature of Alan. Ruby Manson, sad-eyed, watched Leslie as she smilingly acknowledged the greetings of her friends, as she assisted her in fixing the string of pearls which was the gift of the bridegroom. Are you happy, Leslie? Quite happy? Do you think I could be happy? No, 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 I can never forget. But I'll do my duty. And there will be much to do in the parish to keep my mind occupied. Ruby stooped and kissed her friend. She sensed the terrible heartache. The honeymoon for Leslie was a period of mute agony. Try as she would, she could never dissociate Skye with Alan 
and both man and wife were glad when the month expired. Angus, sensing all was not well, was puzzled and hurt. Leslie had retired early on the night they arrived in Skye, and going up some time later, Angus found her asleep, one hand resting under her chin, her face flushed and tear-stained. Thinking that it was just the result of the excitement of the day, he had stooped and reverently kissed her. During the first twelve months of their married life, Leslie was almost reconciled, for if she did not love her husband, she certainly respected him. Then one day, Angus was seriously injured in a car smash and was brought home to die. Before the end, he recovered consciousness and with a great effort spoke what had been on his mind for many days. I hope you'll forgive me, Leslie. I did my best. But I should have known your love for another would never die. When I am gone, dear, I hope you will both be happy. Leslie was all alone. This, she knew, was another payment to the account of pride. It was six months later, and Alan Keith was passing a bookshop from which Leslie suddenly emerged. He had heard of the death of Angus Macrae, and this meeting was so unlooked for that some time passed before either could say anything. At last, Leslie broke the silence. Well, and how are you getting on? The formal greeting was, in the circumstances, pardonable. Very well indeed, Alan managed to say. But what have you been doing lately? Leslie looked away. I am just completing training as a missionary. I leave for Central Africa next week. Completely at a loss for words, Alan longed to take her hand in his and plead with her to remain with him. Leslie saw the old hurt look come into his eyes and her pride, which had died long ago, no longer stood between them. Alan, can you ever forgive me my behaviour on that night we parted? Leslie, forgive you? Why, I've forgiven you long ago. But I have never ceased to love you. Would you think me a presumptuous fool if I asked you to give up your work so that we may help each other to forget the past? Leslie lifted starry eyes to his and answered as he wished. As they stood there, Angus Macrae's shadow seemed to hover round and bless them. Leslie's account with pride was closed. Did you know that The Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Odd Fellows can help. And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Odd Fellows can help with that too. 
They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Odd Fellows a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. And joining me to discuss that story is friend production editor Judy, um, friend poetry editor Abby, and assistant archivist at DC Thompson, Barry Sullivan. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. So, Barry. Yes. What do we think? Oh, um... That is the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to be. Um, Well, I can't pretend that I'm a big fan of the writing, the story, or the characters. uh, (laughs) Which isn't a a particularly strong start, I I know. But But the typeface is wonderful. The typeface is wonderful. (laughs) And the layout. Ah, if you can see, I've got a copy of the page in front of me. It's glorious. Um, No, it's it's not one of the strongest stories we've covered. But um, I I think it may have some saving graces, which I'll I'll maybe sort of allude to later on. Um, Can I just tell you, when we read this Initially, there was no name attached to this and left a bit of speculation about the, the author. But I can tell you that there's somebody called Rachel Monroe who has their name at the bottom of this uh, of this particular story. Now, I don't know if that's a pseudonym. Um, it could, that could be a, a he or she. It could be anybody, frankly. It's not a name that's known to me. But uh, So this possibly was written by um, a female writer, which I, am, I was quite surprised at. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised about that as well. Why is that? Uh, I thought it might have been written by someone who had been turned down <laughs> by a lady, and it was kind of a cautionary tale. You can feel the sting of a jilted lover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do think it's just people behave in this way and the kind of moralistic tone. It's not the kind of thing you would choose to read nowadays, and I think it was maybe just more accepted as a style of writing then, or maybe even the kind of preachy nature of it was something that they looked for in some of their their stories at that time. You're being very measured, Judy. It won't last. (laughs) I think nowadays you wouldn't be able to get away with that kind of really obvious moral because it would just jump right out of the page. I think it's just so completely, completely different to the writing of nowadays that it just wouldn't work. It's a lot more subtle now, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, you know, it's, you're not getting beaten about the head with it in the same way that you are with this. But I think maybe that was just the way things were in general. Things were, I think, you know, even in like at church and things like that, people were, there wasn't the equality of of anything, I guess. Back in, you, you knew your place back in those days. Women had their place. Working class people had their place. Middle class people had their place. You respected or looked up to the minister and the doctor as naturally better people than you, you know, <laughs> whereas that just isn't the case now. So I think they were used to being preached to and taught lessons and things like that 
in a way that you probably wouldn't accept these days. We've all got a bit of the whiff of the brimstone about us these days. <laughs> you speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I kind of thought when I was reading it that it it had the air of those sort of society stories um, that were kind of common back then. So this it was 1927 this was published. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it felt like it had that sort of society air that kind of the the two female protagonists, Leslie and Ruby, are... Uh, they, they're chattering girls and they're uh, seemingly obsessed with, or Leslie certainly is obsessed with status. Uh-huh. Uh, and But I thought that it was crucially missing some of the humor that you find in those stories that could have lightened that moral message a bit mm-hmm. um, so that it's not quite getting bashed over the head. Yeah, I don't even know it's as much humor as just any form of likability. <laughs> They, they are all horrible people. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing to make you like any of these characters, really. Even, even the poor guy that sort of just let her walk out of his life in the huff. The minister? No, no, the the original guy. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the lawyer who was constantly lost for words? Yeah, because I struggled with it. I know. I mean, I mean, I don't know too many lawyers just stupefied on a regular basis. You know, it's their job, right? And he's not going to argue and persuade her to come back. He's just going to let her walk away in the huff because he wouldn't get a taxi and that's the last time he saw her. Come on. <laughs> no, I think I think now that would have to be backed up with, like, this is the last straw and yeah, we've yeah, argued yeah. about this a hundred times before and this is the thing that breaks the relationship. Whereas yes, exactly. In this, there's just absolutely no context. So it's very much sort of two-dimensional. The the character, the, the story's been written around the, the message rather than mm-hmm. the kind of other, you know, the the message being incorporated in a story. It's just it's the, it's all about the message. It's all about the moral, and I don't think it's been terribly well created round about it. Well, I wondered about that because it does seem. It does seem like there's some context missing. Yeah. Um, there's there's an there's one puzzling part where she likens um, Alan Keith to Sky because it's rugged, mm. there's grandeur, and it has a calm restlessness which I can't envisage for the life of me. That <laughs> that phrase just doesn't ring true. Yeah. In any sh- what does that even mean? It, yeah, exactly. But there's it, I started to wonder about this particular story. It just felt like there was something missing. So I went, like I said, I went and had a look at the um, the original. I've got a couple of points I was just going to make about its position within the magazine at that time because uh, it's a bit of an anomaly. This this particular story, as far as I can see. So this is this appears. Um, forget the name, February twenty sixth, nineteen twenty seven, and this is on page two. Now, page two at that time was generally given over to the continuation or conclusion of the front page story. Okay. Now, your front page story is usually your blockbusters. That's your NES Swans and Agnes Mitchell's, one of those, and it's usually part of a big serial. Round about this particular time, it looked like it looks like the magazine was between big serials. It had a, a little run of uh, one-offs, which is a bit, a bit unusual, but, you know, not unknown. But um, I did notice that there was a, an NES one starting about two or three weeks later. So it looked to me like the one-off they'd used for page one and onto page two was maybe a little shorter than they'd hoped. And the way the the magazine was formatted back then, it'd been the same for many years, and that sort of three-column 
format. Most of the short stories would take up a page. Love and Pride takes up two thirds of a page, hmm. which kind of made me wonder, was this a bit of a filler? Was this a, maybe a, a longer story which had been culled to fit that particular space? Or had it been written in a hurry to fit this particular space? It just felt there was a lot missing. It certainly feels like it was written in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like there was a great deal of thought went into this. It was just like, right, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and that's it. She's sorted out now. <laughs> ah, now we're getting to it. That might also explain why um, there was no writer credited. Yeah. Perhaps one of the members of staff wrote it quite quickly and, and they just put it in. Well, it, I said there was a, a name attached to it at the very bottom, which again speaks uh, um, of the the status of the writer. So there's a name, Rachel Monroe, attached to this, but it's at the bottom of the story. Your bigger writers, bigger well-known ones, uh, their names would trail the beginning. They'd be in the banner. So it does make me wonder, yeah, is this is this, a, is this a one-off contribution or is this actually, like you say, a member of staff who has been put on the spot by their editor? Look, we've got two-thirds of a page. There's no advertising. What can you rustle up? Yeah. And I would say... We've had a you know we've had a, a bit of a, a dig at the writing style, but can can we agree that there is a connecting thread here? There is a theme throughout this, and it is that when automotive transport and men collide, heartache ensues <laughs> because this absolute <laughs> shambles of a relationship begins and ends with cars, and it ends slightly abruptly with a car, but. Um, it's there nonetheless, and it's reinforced. This theme is reinforced later on when you have a uh, bride and groom coming out of the wedding about to get into a car, at which point uh, Leslie sees her former uh, fiancé and is figuratively and literally looking up to him. And it's almost like he's, he's, he's virtuous. Uh, he's virtuous because he's taking this public transport. Uh -huh. He's virtuous because he's not using this car. And I kept coming back to this and thinking, is this somebody who's got something against cars? What is their deal with these cars? You know, they don't seem to like people using you know, private modes of transport. I, I must have missed the moral to the story entirely. I thought it was one thing, but apparently it's it's the new Luddites are attacking automotive transport. Mm, I'm not sure I'm buying that. <laughs> no, not convinced? No, I'm not buying that. <laughs> I think you're... Uh, I think you're smarter than the writer. <laughs> <laughs> that was either a stinging rebuke or um, a great compliment. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> I'm just, just going to gloss over that. <laughs> what, what do we think? What do we think the moral is of this story? Then I would say it's about pride. <laughs> is is car ownership linked to pride? Or am I <laughs> are my stretching? I think you could be right because the car could be linked with status, so that goes along with pride. Mm -hmm. The thing that would put me off that interpretation is the, the chap, the unfortunate chap who seems to exist entirely so that he can get married to a woman who has no feelings for him and then die. Um, that's, that sort of stitches him up a bit. Um, and with him being a minister, I, I kind of got the impression there was nothing really wrong with that fella, that he was quite a, a, an upstanding citizen. I don't think there was anything wrong with either of them. I think the moral of the story is, if you've got a nice lawyer who likes you, don't behave like a brat. <laughs> and uh, 
you'll get to marry him and not somebody that you didn't want to marry in the first place. I think that's the moral of the story. Don't behave like a spoiled brat. The people's friend says, go forth and get yourself a lawyer. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> With big grey eyes that uses public transport. Oh, steely grey eyes. Yeah. They all had grey eyes. That was the other thing that leapt out at me. Yeah. There was no deviation. Yeah, that stood out to me as well. One of the things I did like, right at the very beginning... Um, I'm, I'm going to try and credit the writer with some skill. I know nobody else wants to, but I'm going to try and credit this writer with some skill here. Um, it's the shorthand that they used to allude to character. And Judy and Abby, would you agree when you're writing short fiction, you've got to find shorthand? Or you've got to find a quick way in yeah. to let your audience mm-hmm. know. And I, I always think that whatever you put in that first line, if you're writing about a person, that's that's who they are and that's what you want the readers to know about them. And I couldn't help but pick up on uh, the fact that she was dancing the foxtrot. And I, when I went digging, when I had a look online, the, the, the foxtrot has a, a really interesting history. I couldn't delve too much, but it was one of the, the animal dance craze uh, that swept, swept the world in the, the mid-1910s and included all sorts of different animals, um, I don't know if a squirrel or badger, but there was certainly a turkey trot, which was deemed so, so outrageous that it, um, it caused Woodrow Wilson to cancel his inaugural ball for fear that this outrageous, <laughs> immoral dance would take place. So I, I, I really thought, well, what, what is she saying about this character if she's dancing the foxtrot with someone who isn't her fiancé? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I looked, uh, I went back to the British newspaper archive just to get a, a sense of how that was viewed at the time. By 1927, I think the foxtrot was the last of these animal crazy, you know, animal dances that had gained some degree of respectability. It was the only one that really made it out of that period. And I think there were reports of minor royals dancing the foxtrot. But uh, 1925, for one of our newspapers, the Evening Telegraph had a little little story. Was the new foxtrot stated to be vulgar? <laughs> Is the new foxtrot? <laughs> Known as the Charleston vulgar. Well, that's really funny. So you've got this idea that maybe she's not completely outrageous, she's not a flapper, but she will dance a mildly scandalous way with somebody who's not her. She's no better than she should be. That's what's wrong with oh, her. Oh, maybe that's, maybe that's what they're looking <laughs> at. I'm absolutely desperate to make a turkey trots joke, <laughs> but I know that this is not the place for it and I'd have to cut it out anyway. What would the readers think about popular dance shows then? I know. If they didn't like the foxtrot. Scandalous. That is a whiff of the brimstone sort of material, I think. <laughs> to be fair to the writer, I don't think it's badly written in any sense. I just don't think it has the craftsmanship that um, some of the other ones kind of display. It does. I'm. I'm right behind that theory that it was written in a hurry. Rather than, than culled to, to a point where it was uh, rendered almost... Well, it could it could have been culled, but it seems unlikely that they would have done it in such a way to leave it obviously lacking. As you said, they're very good at putting in those little shorthands that give things away. So I think if it had been culled, they would have made sure to put something in that would have given it more context. So what's the final verdict in that case? It's definitely all about cars. It's all about cars. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> cars are bad. Buses good. 
<laughs> I was going to try try to think of like a rating system we could do, like Ebert and Roper used to do for films. But um, I think it might now be we might do it in cars. How many cars does this, does this story get? And what kind of cars? Oh, Model T Fords, surely. <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe a, a smart car, maybe, or a couple of mopeds. Um, I'm not sure this rating system has legs or wheels. Uh, but that's it for this episode so uh, my thanks to Abby and Barney for joining us um, to Judy for her lovely reading and thanks to you at home as well for listening and until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you cheerio thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8, and that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that has read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend